Hello, everybody. Welcome. Um, it's great to see so many people here. Um, we're CADA. Um, that's me, Jared Hawkey, and Sophia Oliveira. And as organizers of this event, um, we must thank the DG Arts, um, whose financial support made this event possible. Um, CADA would also like to thank our partner, the Lisbon Architecture Triennale, for hosting and promoting the event. We're also especially grateful to our supporters, Lisbon City Council, Professor Nunu Correa at Nova Links, Nova University, Lisbon, and Assistant Professor Alessandra Pio at the Department of Architecture and Urbanism, Ishkate, or University Institute of Lisbon. Thank you to all of them. Um, so why, why are we doing this? Um, I'm going to read this statement. Um, and it starts like this. If we want to understand our current condition, both as individuals and also as a society, we need to look at the way technology is shaping and altering the world. We need to recognize that reality is now formed by huge and complex computational apparatus, which is permeating every aspect of the human habitat. And as recent tech industry scandals have shown, the way this new computational order presides over us while also enabling our communication is in itself a factor for political risk. If now it's obvious to all that it's a specific set of values that are driving technological change, it's also clear that we'll have to broaden the debate about what we want from technology. We must also look for ways that areas such as new forms of machine intelligence could be used for the social good. Despite its complexity, we need to acknowledge the assumptions and values built into much of today's AI are now very narrow. And these are only one set of choices amongst many. We need new language to describe the new complexity, but perhaps above all, and of special relevance for these talks, we need to embrace the fact that artificial intelligences think very differently from ourselves. It's a great honor to have um, James here as part of this event. So James Bridal is an artist and writer working across technologies and disciplines. His artworks have been commissioned by galleries and institutions and exhibited worldwide and on the internet. His writing on culture and networks has appeared in magazines and newspapers such as Wired, Domos, The Guardian <coughs> and many others. Over the years, James's work has helped clarify Kada's thoughts about the contemporary moment. His recent book, New Dark Age, shows how, as the world around us increases in technological complexity, our understanding of it paradoxically diminishes. How, as the computational infrastructure continues to enter and affect every aspect of our daily lives, this particular configuration of technologies also becomes increasingly opaque. Resisting utopian and dystopian narratives of the near future, there is an urgency about James's work that taps into the zeitgeist. His answer is to encourage us to think about the present. Rather than offer a solution, James's work comes with a commitment to raise public awareness 
and a call for a collective reassessment of the technologies that make our world. Welcome, James, and thank you for accepting. Hi. Uh, thank you very much indeed for that introduction. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Takada, and for all the supporters. Thank you all very much indeed for being here. It's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit this evening about, um, about a few things. I'm going to tell some stories about technology. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about uh, some of the history of technology, the stories about it that I find interesting that have kind of fed into my way of thinking um, about how technology works in the world, which is basically how we work in the world. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about AI, uh, or what we sort of call AI, um, uh, how strange it is in the present, uh, and I'm also going to go on a kind of long rambling tangent at the end about how we could maybe think about it differently. Um, so, one of the places that the stories that I tell about technology start here, or a little before this. This is a book from 1922 uh, called Weather Forecasting by Numerical Processes. Uh, it was written by an English meteorologist called Lewis Fry Richardson. Um, and though the book only came out in 1922, Richardson had been working on this uh, for quite a long time previously. Um, he was a meteorologist who got his training before the First World War and was working at an observatory. Um, and then he got called up like millions of others into the First World War. Uh, Richardson was a Quaker. He was a pacifist as a result. And so he refused to join the armed services, but he went as an ambulance uh, driver and a stretcher bearer. So he served throughout the First World War as a, as a medical orderly. Um, but when he went, he took with him a whole set of uh, weather observations that had been made in the years previously. Uh, because he had this idea that if you could turn the weather into numerical data, if you could transform this whole set of observations into numbers, you could perform mathematical calculations on them. Uh, and, and by doing so, you could predict the weather. You could say, like, this is the conditions now, this is what we've seen happen previously, and this is how we'll take it forward. And he did this. Um, and he did this, and, and he wrote it up in this book um, that came out after the war, and it's the basis of all weather forecasting today. And the process for doing this was that you split the world into sets of squares. You take readings in each of those squares, and then you calculate relating between the squares, doing these calculations to kind of move the weather forward in your mind, imagining what would happen to it, and thus predict what will happen, what will happen in the future. Um, oh, thanks, computer. There we go. Um, what's particularly amazing about, about Richardson doing this is he did all this during the war. Uh, he did this while he was working as an ambulance driver um, in the trenches, uh, behind lines, in rest billets, with pencil and paper. Uh, he did this as a, as a... There were no calculators, there were no computers. He did this himself. Um, and he reckoned that while in this book he reports a full 24-hour forecast of the weather, he reckons it took him about six months to calculate, right? So to get a full 24-hour forecast of the weather, it took him six whole months to do it. Um, which he thought was pretty good. Uh, the weather result was, was okay. It was improved by later calculations. Um, but he, he believed that was a, a useful method here, but he really thought it was a kind of intellectual exercise. Um, 
at one point in the book, he describes what it would take to, uh, to perform uh, this weather calculation at a speed that would make it useful, i.e. faster than the weather itself. Um, and you have to remember at this point, um, computers are people, right? Uh, the word computer was previously applied just to people who were good at maths and would sit there doing calculations all day. And he imagined this is a painting much later of what he describes in the book, a kind of vast hall with the entire globe split into sections uh, with people, hundreds and hundreds of computers working on the ground floor of this grand hall, constantly calculating as weather reports come in from all over the globe in order to, um, to move this calculation faster. Um, and he believed that, um, uh, he, he wrote in this book that perhaps someday in the dim future it will be possible to advance computation faster than the weather advances and at a cost less than the saving to mankind due to the information gained. But that is a dream. Uh, and it was to remain a dream for quite a while longer. Um, but uh, computers started to become machines, and they were able to perform calculations much, much faster than people were able to do so. Um, to the point in uh, 1950, uh, when a computer called the ENIAC uh, was used to run the very first mechanical computational <laughs> forecast of a day's weather, this time for, for the United States. This is the program that did it. Uh, a team of computer scientists got together to work on this, which is basically the first fully um, programmable computer. Um, and they, uh, they ran one of uh, these calculations. It was basically the same calculation that Richardson did. Uh, and in 1950, um, they ran it, and it took the computer about four days. Um, but when they actually put together and calculated how long the machine had actually been running for that time, uh, they produced the full 24-hour forecast in 23 and a half hours of computation time. And at this point, like, a barrier is broken, right? Computation is suddenly running faster than the world itself. Uh, and, and this is the moment when we're actually able to model the world to such a degree that we, we're able to predict the future, um, which, which for me is a moment when something crosses over in, in kind of mathematics and computation to kind of produce the world in which we all live now, a world that is kind of constantly modeled and predicted uh, with attempts at control. Um, because control is a huge part of this story. The ENIAC was a computer that was built by uh, the US Department of Defense. Um, like most early computers, it was a, it was a war machine. Um, the first computers were built for uh, calculating artillery trajectories, um, and later for running the first nuclear bomb uh, calculations, which is what the ENIAC was for. The very first computer was basically designed for two things, which is to calculate the yield of nuclear bombs and to predict the weather. And weather itself was, weather prediction was a, was a, was a war uh, program as well, because if you could um, predict the weather, you could control to some extent the, the action on the battlefield, and some believed actually control the weather itself eventually. Um, all of that through this process of stripping the world down into data, collecting it all together, processing it faster and faster and faster at ever greater levels of abstraction to attain this kind of control over the world. Um, a lot of these stories I tell are dark stories, but I also, <laughs> I'm also a nerd. Um, and I also still love this machine. It's one of my favorite computers, uh, this ENIAC, um, because it, it was amazing. I mean, it was the size of kind of a couple of rooms. Um, and, uh, you know, filled entirely with these panels, wires and switches that could be moved around, 
uh, kind of changed around four different programs. Programming was both like typing stuff in or feeding in punch cards, and it was also like screwdrivers, wires, moving this stuff around. Um, there's a beautiful quote by a mathematician called Harry Reid who worked on this computer. Um, uh, in his memoirs, he wrote that um, the beautiful thing about the ENIAC was that it was, a, it was a very personal computer. Today, we think of personal computers as, as things like this that we carry around with us, but the ENIAC was a personal computer because you lived inside it, right? Um, and, and, and that hasn't actually gone away. We have this idea of computation having kind of shrunk, but really, the ENIAC and all computation after it has expanded until it encircles the entire planet uh, through distributed data centers and fiber optic connections and even extending up into orbit in the form of satellites. It's kind of a vast, vast computational system and architecture that we all very much live in. Um, there's also something else that's, I think, quite important to think about in terms of the ENIAC and these computers is that because of their scale at which they operated, they were also quite sort of visible and legible. Um, even if you weren't a trained programmer, you could go into the room and kind of see this machine working. Um, and actually, when computations were happening, you could kind of follow mechanisms and lights as a program moved through various systems around the room and follow physically a process that was occurring within the computation. And that's one of the kind of things that have become lost as computation has both shrunk and expanded, um, is we don't, we're not able to follow those calculations in kind of anything like the same way anymore. This is a graph of, of Moore's law, which kind of comes almost immediately after the ENIAC and computers like it start to spread and to take over. Um, Moore's law is a, a law that was formulated in, in the 1950s to describe, yeah, 1950s, more said, um, that describes the amount of memory that's available to computers, or, or more precisely, the cost of memory, uh, the cost of computing power, the cost of computer chips, which basically says the power of a computing chip doubles every two years. Um, it's called Moore's Law, but it's always just been a rule of thumb. Uh, it's named after um, the Moore of the title is, uh, was uh, a, a senior... Uh, executive at IBM, so they were developing these first chips, and he noticed this trend was happening, and he thought it would continue for maybe like the next five, ten years. Uh, it's held true ever since, and so we call it a law because it seems like computation just keeps on getting faster and faster, and as a result, all kinds of incredible things are made possible. All of our technologies depend upon this kind of rising tide of computational power being available to us. And as a result, it's, it's, as I say, as it becomes a law, it's become almost a kind of moral law. It's become one with this kind of law of progress, that the connection between increasing computational power is a kind of natural law that allows us to do ever more with computation and to believe that the world really is computationally based, right? This is, this is the thing that I, that, I, that I find most compelling about the kind of absorption of Moore's law into society, is it's made us believe that computation is a natural law and the way to think about the world is computationally. In, in Silicon Valley, they call it, or critics of Silicon Valley would call this a kind of solutionism, the belief that any problem can be applied simply by adding more computers to the problem. And because of Moore's law, there are always more computers to be applied to the problem. 
I, I, I think it goes deeper than that kind of solutionist thinking as a business term or even a social term. I think of it as a kind of computational thinking, the belief that, uh, that's kind of settled deep into our brains that like, um, like Richardson's map of Europe and the weather forecasting, the world can be reduced to data, that it can be calculated, that it can be modeled and ultimately controlled. And this belief has settled sort of so deep into our brains that we don't really question it very much, even when it produces kind of very strange, uh, odd results in the world. One of the reasons we don't question it very much is, is we don't think about it very often. It's become kind of obvious to us, which means alternatives to it are unseen. That which is not computable simply kind of falls out of our ability to think about it. But also it's been deliberately hidden by those who benefit from it, uh, that this powers not just the tech industry, but pretty much all kind of exploitative capitalist industry, this belief that more power will always be more available. These things, to me, are kind of intrinsically and deeply linked. But to continue to believe it in the present day is to kind of ignore many of its kind of deeply weird and strange effects. Um, one of the things I, th I think about a lot is how capable we are of continuing to believe in what is increasingly obviously a fallacy, despite kind of huge numbers of examples to the contrary, um, because they're so difficult to think, uh, and so few of us really understand the processes behind them. Um, but I do believe that if we look clearly at the ways in which our technology actually functions and the results it actually produces in the world, we can still learn a huge amount from the ways in which it fails to work. And it's failing in weird and strange and interesting ways all over the place. Um, this is a graph of something called Arum's Law. Um, Arum's Law is Moore's Law backwards. It's a biology joke. Um, uh, and it's made by biologists or rather pharmacologists working on the development of, of new drugs. Uh, so this, whereas Moore's Law is a graph of computing power ascending over time as it gets cheaper, this is a graph of uh, the increased costs of spending to develop new drugs. We're discovering fewer and fewer new medicines, even though we're throwing more and more money at it. And the opposite shape of this has given it the name Arum's Law. One of the possible reasons for this, one of the more convincing reasons for this, is the way in which drug discovery is done today. If you think about um, how you might imagine like a chemicals or a, a medicines lab happening, you imagine a bunch of people in white coats and kind of bubbling beakers and all of that stuff, which is reasonable, um, but it's not really like that anymore. Uh, a, a modern pharmaceutical lab basically looks like a cross between a kind of data center and a kind of robot uh, car factory. Uh, it's entirely automated and it involves using uh, a combination of machines to test millions and millions of chemicals against each other in a kind of attempt to exhaust the entire space of chemical reactions in order to discover things. And an increasing number of, of, of people who work in this domain, uh, pharmaceutical researchers and, and kind of theorists of science and scientific discovery are increasingly convinced that this isn't the way. And in fact, large pharmaceutical companies have started to put together smaller teams of researchers based on the idea that actually people following hunches is a different way of exploring this kind of space of chemical possibility that leads to entirely different sets of results. This is an example of a purely computational way of thinking failing 
in scientifically measurable ways. Um, we have other obvious ways in which uh, computationally extractive ways of thinking are also incredibly, not just failing, but are actively endangering us. This is another graph that goes up and to the right, um, but not in the nice way that Moore's law does. This is the Keeling curve, um, or the, the um, uh, observations of CO2 from uh, the Mauna Loa Observatory. Um, the, the rising levels of CO2 in the atmosphere uh, that passed 400 parts per million a couple of years ago, which is unprecedented uh, since the last ice age. Um, the legacy of this kind of computational extractive thinking is part and parcel for me of capitalist extraction in general and also our relationship to the environment and the world which we have treated as inexhaustible and computable in this way. And this is coming back. There's a reason I bring this back and we'll keep bringing it back to the environment because we can see it occurring and disrupting the very systems we've put in place to computationally control the world. That what Richardson set out to do, what the ENIAC made possible and what we've all grown used to, weather forecasting, is starting to fail. Over the last hundred years, we've pushed the, the, the kind of horizon of forecasting out to, um, to like 10 to 12 days, which is frankly fantastic and an amazing, incredible achievement um, to be able to predict pretty accurately turbulent, complex weather systems that far ahead. The thing is, we do that based on past behaviors. We look at all the weather data previously, we apply it to the present, and we extrapolate it forward. And that approach is failing because the atmosphere is changing. Because of climate change, the weather isn't like it used to be. It's behaving in ways that we haven't seen it behave before. These are graphs of uh, clear air turbulence over the North Atlantic. Um, because of the way the atmosphere is becoming less stable, flights are becoming bumpier. This is a measurable effect in the present, a result of climate change that's happening now. But very specifically, it also means that our ability to predict the future is getting worse. This, this ability that we've relied on for so long to kind of extrapolate from past data and expect the future to be that way isn't going to work for much longer. Um, and that, that, for me, blows apart the entire system on which we've kind of staked our ability to compute and think the future. And this environmental collapse, this environmental um, uh, danger and, and turn is mirrored for me in the kind of cognitive collapses we see happening around as a result of new technologies. Um, because these technologies have done something very, they've done many strange things to our minds. Computational thinking is a kind of broad overview of the way we think the world. Um, but it doesn't even begin to describe the ways in which it kind of uh, living with these technologies has increasingly changed us. Um, there's a thing I think about a lot, which is called automation bias. Um, automation bias is a thing that's been measured in all kinds of groups of people. In fact, it's been measured in pretty much everyone. Um, but uh, an interesting example, because it involves highly skilled people who you think wouldn't behave this way, is extensive tests on airline pilots. Um, who've been shown that under simulated conditions, if an airline pilot with an immense amount of skill, who knows their job, who knows the, the, the aircraft they're flying, who knows all this information, presented with a, um, uh, a, a dangerous, for want of a better term, situation, um, will do the wrong thing 
if given that information to do so by an automated system. So if there's a, if there's a, a, a flight computer that tells them to do one thing, they will, without thinking, as a complete like neurological hack, override what it is that years of training and experience might tell them. This is, this is a weird thing that some legacy of a neurological pathway in our brains that's effectively taken advantage of by technologies to change our ways of behavior in a second without us really thinking about it. And it's mirrored all the way up into things like um, uh, death by GPS, which is a term that park rangers in the US use for people who follow the GPS systems of their cars into places like uh, Death Valley, despite the absence of uh, uh, road signs, despite increasingly bad roads, uh, they will drive into Death Valley or in, in other cases into lakes or into rivers because they will follow the bright line of that GPS system, whatever it tells them, regardless of the evidence of their own senses. So something is very weird happening when we start to actually place these computational systems basically as, as life support systems. parent who knows what this is. Yes, there's some nods, there's some hands, okay, sorry. Um, for those who don't know, these are things called surprise egg videos. Um, surprise egg videos are really, really big on YouTube. Um, really, the parents will just, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not, I discovered these things, other people have, have explored them more. Um, they're weird, um, they they're long videos of people opening kinder eggs or other forms of eggs over and over and over again, and that's basically it, except these things hypnotize toddlers. Uh, they become completely and utterly obsessed with them. Um, they are a, a weird uh, subculture of YouTube that, has, that, that draws small children in and will watch these things for hours. And what's happening here is, is the weaponization of one of those neurological hacks. Um, Potentially by accident, originally, but now quite deliberately. This, this, what's particularly distressing about this, for me, is this begins with child development techniques developed for education. So a lot of the research that we know, so we understand what's happening here, comes out of children's TV shows like Sesame Street, or the Teletubbies, if people know that as well, came out of this. Um, where child psychologists looked at what motivates children, what works for them, which is to assist learning uh, safe forms of repetition. Small children like to see things over and over again where they know the outcome in a comforting situation. It hooks into something in their brains. And for decades, children's psychologists and educationalists and TV program makers use this to educate kids. You know, you tack some learning onto that reflex. What's happening here is, is the weaponization of that reflex without any of the additional learning benefits. Um, they've figured out a cognitive hack on small children. Um, uh, it's then used to generate ad revenue on YouTube. Um, that's what's happening in kind of myriad ways on YouTube. Um, the, the surprise egg videos are just one small example of that. Um, they get kind of much, much weirder. Um, I've documented this quite extensively and I won't go into it too much. Um, but there's very, very weird stuff out there. Um, there's huge amounts of content which is produced and we don't really know who's producing it or how. It's essentially produced by a collision of this neurological hack on children's brains, uh, YouTube's 
a willingness to provide ad revenue in return for views, and the way in which YouTube recommends videos, which is done by a kind of combination of uh, search results, by tags on videos, all of this. And what you have is, on the one hand, YouTube's algorithms trying to um, distribute views around videos. On the other hand, you have people trying to make videos that make money, uh, competing against one each other, generating children's TV. And in the middle, you have small children watching this, uh, whose brains are being scrambled by, by, by sitting within this kind of nexus of uh, uh, monetization of video, uh, cheap, cheap uh, production values, uh, and, um, and yeah, the attention economy. Um, this is what happens when the extractive ideas of capital meet the neurological hacks made possible by technology. Um, but it's not just happening to kids either, it's happening at kind of all levels. Um, one of the ways in which the connection between neurological hacking of kind of advertising revenue, increasing views, um, and uh, kind of YouTube's algorithms happen is increasing radicalization online. Um, which takes kind of many forms, but it's increasingly clear that there's actually a, a radicalization process that happens here. This is uh, Walter Cronkite talking seriously and realistically about climate change on television in 1980. Um, but because of the way these systems have been designed, the way our media systems are increasingly based on algorithmic recommendation and advertising, um, this is what YouTube suggests you should watch next. Um, in 38 years, we've gone from a serious and reasoned debate on climate change to uh, crazy conspiracy theories. Um, there's been some really crazy, interesting uh, research done recently on flat earth conspiracy theories. Flat earth conspiracy theories didn't really exist much, kind of even five years ago. They have been created by YouTube, this entire kind of network of such, by this process. And what you've got here is basically an algorithm the way the algorithm works is it wants you to watch videos, right? But imagine, imagine an algorithm is watching you driving down the street or watching us all driving down streets, right? And it wants like a nice flow of traffic, but there's a car crash, right? And so everyone stops to look at the car crash. It all slows down, right? And the algorithm goes, oh, brilliant. People love car crashes, right? So I'm going to give them loads more car crashes. That is pretty much precisely what is occurring here. Um, but now apply that to flat earth conspiracy theories, or climate change denial, or right-wing extremism, or religious fundamentalism. Those are the processes that are occurring here. It's a, it's a very intense feedback loop between these systems which have got out of our kind of rational control and understanding and our, our social life. So I, I think about those systems quite a lot, and I try to think about ways in which it's possible for us to think about them differently and to propose alternatives to them. And that's what I'm going to talk about from sort of here on in, having given some groundwork for all the horror. Um, uh, in particular, I'm interested in systems that are described as intelligent. Um, I, I, that's a difficult term, which I'll come back to. These things are actually incredibly dumb in many, many ways, uh, but they are complex, right? And their complexity often exceeds our understanding, even if it doesn't equate to intelligence. And so a lot of this thinking is like, how do we live meaningfully and thoughtfully 
with complexity that extends beyond us. Um, to give an example of my own work, um, how do we change a kind of perspective around this? And for me, that often work involves simply working with this stuff myself. So one of the areas I was looking at in which uh, machine intelligence, machine learning um, is being applied is uh, self-driving cars, um, uh, which I thought was super interesting because these like, exist properly out in the real world in important ways that matter. Um, and so the way that I decided to investigate this was to attempt to build one myself. Um, because a lot of my work and a lot of the work that I think is important is saying that this stuff is completely accessible to everyone. Um, that all of us can understand this. Uh, this does not, should not be the domain of any kind of particular specialist. That this is kind of understandable to all of us. And so this was an attempt to do that. Um, here is my crappy rental car with a bunch of webcams stuck on it, uh, a computer running, a kind of data logging system, um, my phone that I programmed to record the steering wheel and so on and so forth. Um, I managed to make a, uh, I didn't make a fully self-driving car, I made one that worked quite well-ish under simulation circumstances. I wouldn't recommend everyone drove it. But what I did do in by doing it was understand a little bit of how this machine understands the world. So what I was interested in doing was not to try and understand the complexity of every decision, which I'll talk about again in a sec, simply to understand how it is that this machine sees, right? Uh, what part of this is the world that we share with it? Um, to explain that slightly better, this is, this is one of the outcomes of that, of that project. Um, I, I wanted to make the car, I wanted it to do certain things, um, and that was a process of understanding it so that I could control it and perhaps change its intention. Um, and then I thought what I'd do was, like, okay, but if the other thing, as well as learning about this stuff, is to know that we can always stop it, um, so this is a trap for self-driving cars. Um, what, the, what this is, is a, um, very simply, the European symbol for a dead end, right? which is one, uh, or no entry, uh, which is a thick line and then a dashed line, transformed into a circle surrounding this car, which is programmed not to break the law, means that once the vehicle enters this circle, it cannot leave. Um, and I look forward to a future of people kind of, you know, war chalking um, routes to stop kind of self-driving Ubers coming down their street. Um, but I also realized in doing this that this wasn't quite the kind of aggressive gesture that, I, that I'd originally thought I was making. That, that, that thing of trapping it, of stopping it felt super aggressive. But actually subsequently I've realized that's not necessarily what I was doing here, because I was able to do this because I understood something about how the machine saw the world. And in doing so, I made something which is visible to both the machine and the human. Right? That's, what, that's what the trap does, is it performs something which is accessible to the understanding of the machine. It views these lines, and so can humans. And so it's actually creating a kind of a shared space, a space of common understanding. Um, a kind of common ground in which these complex systems and us can kind of share some form of experience. Um, and I realized afterwards that comes also from, from other things that I've been interested in thinking about for a while. Um, this, is, um, this is one of my favorite, another of my favorite stories about technology and how we can respond to it. Um, this is uh, the moment in 1997 
when Garry Kasparov, uh, probably the best human chess player ever, is beaten by Deep Blue, um, a computer that IBM built explicitly to beat him. Um, uh, he's very angry. Uh, and you understand why. We were all angry or a bit weirded out or upset at this point because, because chess was the thing that had been built up as the singular human achievement. Right? It was the kind of the high point of human understanding and thinking. And, and this moment was built as kind of human versus machine. And the moment the machine kind of uh, won over, um, uh, this was a kind of a, a, a horrible moment for the humans when we realized we kind of lost this ground that we weren't going to get back. Something super interesting happened, though, um, which is that... Uh, you know, the machines carried on getting better, blah, blah, blah. Kasparov did something really interesting. Kasparov came back the next year with a new kind of chess, um, which he called centaur chess or advanced chess. I like centaur chess better because it lets me use this image, which has nothing to do with chess, but it's a NASA robot called the centaur. Um, centaur chess is a form of chess in which uh, humans and machines play together, right? Um, so, as, as the chess player, you're also allowed to use a chess computer as a, as a team, working together. What's incredibly interesting about Centaur Chess is that entirely new kinds of games came about, whole new fields of play were developed, but also that while today, even a kind of middling chess computer will beat any human alive, a human working with a middling chess computer will beat the best chess supercomputer. There's something about the combination of these forms and strategies that actually produce an entirely, me, entirely different way of thinking, an entirely different strategy, which seems to be more powerful than human versus machine, the two working together. Now, this is increasingly being challenged with the latest kind of big smackdown that human intelligence has had in the form of uh, computers that play Go. Um, so this is, um, this is master on the Tigem Go server. So Go is the Chinese game that um, kind of got put forward as the next chess, essentially, being more complex. Computers will never get this, right? Um, New Year's 2016, uh, a new player turns up on, on a, a computer Go server that's used by most of the best Go players, all the world champions are on this server. And over the course of uh, seven days, uh, this new player uh, played 60 games and won every single one of them, uh, beating pretty much every one of the top 30 Go players in the world. Um, they were pretty sure uh, what this was, and it was announced shortly afterwards that this was indeed a computer program, um, an iteration of, of Google's AlphaGo, um, a much more powerful one, in fact. And they admitted this after, like, the 59th game. Um, and it's really amazing reading the accounts of Go players who watched this machine at work that kind of played against it. Um, uh, one Go player said it was like, um, it's like how I imagine games from the far future. Um, and another said that it felt like an alien intelligence had landed among us. This was the scale of the kind of strangeness and difference that this thing um, was producing. Even its creator, Demis Hassabis, likes to say that it comes from another dimension. Uh, we struggle with the words to describe this kind of form of weirdness and intelligence. Um, this, this was about six months after the famous game of, of AlphaGo against Lisa Doll, which was the first time a 
uh, a computer convincingly beat a Go player. This is the moment in the, the third game of five, um, which actually leaves the commentators completely speechless. The first two games had been fairly evenly matched, but about halfway through the third game, um, AlphaGo plays a move that the commentators uh, and everyone is initially convinced is a mistake. It's so clearly the wrong move and so wild and out of place um, that it just must be an error in the machine. And it's only like a kind of 10, 20 moves later that everyone starts to realize that this is pretty much the most amazing Go move ever played in the history of the game. It completely dominates the board. It changes the course of everything. And it's a, it's a move no human could have imagined. And we will never know what the machine was thinking about. There's a, there's, a, there's a really key difference between the machine that played Garry Kasparov and the machine that played Lisa Dole. Um, because the machine that played Kasparov was like, um, was like Richardson's pencil and paper, right? It may have taken him six months, but it was a clear set of mathematical principles applied to a set of underlying data. And if you had pencil and paper, you could figure it out. Right? It was basically just brute forcing all the possibilities. It was looking at the, at the chessboard and saying, like, if I do that, they'll do this. If I do that, I'll do this. And working those forward slightly further than a human can do. That's not how these systems today work. When you hear about artificial intelligence or deep learning, machine learning now, they're talking about something that's very different from simple computation. They're talking about what's called neural networks. These systems that have been evolved, evolved, created, designed to mimic certain aspects of the brain. They're not artificially intelligent, but they operate in ways that are impossible for us to visualize or understand because of their level of complexity. The machine is now playing a game that we cannot understand, that we will never be able to track. We can't ask it why it made these decisions. There's something else entirely different going on here, which is very strange indeed and slightly sad to know that these machines might have kind of more fun than we're having in, in, in getting involved in this. Um, because their minds, whatever those minds are, are so fundamentally different and incomprehensible to ours. So can we apply that Centaur strategy, that chess strategy, to this? Um, people are trying to do this in kind of interesting ways. Uh, this is Tri-Alpha Energy, which uh, I'm usually really rude about Google, but this is a really interesting good thing they're doing, uh, which is they're working with a company to develop fusion energy, um, a system and a set of experiments so complicated that they, the scientists working on it struggling to make any kind of meaningful progress by kind of just tweaking it in the right direction because the search space, the number of options are so complicated. So they're working with a neural network that also looks at all of these tweaks and possibilities and all the variables and the experimental design, doesn't do it by itself, presents a range of options to the human scientist working on it, and they collaborate in order to decide which way in which this um, experiment is going to proceed. They've worked out a method for an inscrutable computational process to work together with a human in just the same way as the chess computer and the human uh, player might work together to collaborate, to evolve strategies which not, neither one would have kind of figured out on their own. So this, this, this approach is possible, but it, for me it still remains fundamentally different because we're collaborating with an intelligence that we don't 
fully understand? Um, and, and how do we replace that understanding with something else, with some other way of thinking that doesn't fall us into the same kind of traps that allow us to be manipulated in the way that the even quite stupid systems I showed earlier um, continue to manipulate us now. Because this is, this is really important. This, um, all of this machine learning stuff is increasingly going to be is already in places and is increasingly going to be in everything around us. Deep learning systems are already playing the stock market and influencing it. They're inside our national economies. They're inside our health systems. They're inside our insurance systems. They are the systems that are driving all the large corporations and increasingly systems of governance that affect all of our daily lives. So what does it mean to have inscrutable complex systems that make us that make us resort to terms like godlike, alien-like, uh, mysterious. What does it mean when those are the things that are inside our kind of daily social, political, and, and literary life support machines? Um, that seems to me to be a, a question of some major urgency. For me, it has to come with a call to rethink our relationship, not just with those machines, but with the world that has produced our kind of inability to understand them, the computational world. Uh, that we, this, as I mentioned earlier, I see a definite and complete parallel between this kind of cognitive failure, this cognitive collapse, our inability to reckon with machines and our inability to reckon with the natural world. Um, for me, the, the belief in dominance, either of computation or of our own dominance over the planet, are deeply uh, intertwined. They relate to a same inability to react um, meaningfully and with justice to systems of computation that are starting to, to fail, systems of thinking that are starting to fail. And the, and the failure is, is obvious in our, in our cognitive systems and in our environmental systems. Um, and so finally, uh, the, this is the things I'm thinking about now is how we kind of reframe our thinking about these systems in different ways. Um, because it's, it seems very strange to me. I'm, I'm constantly, I, I find this so bizarre that just at this moment when we seem so focused as a society on creating one kind of intelligence in the form of uh, artificial intelligence, something that may ultimately replace us uh, that may actually, uh, that certainly stands as a kind of greater abstraction of us from the world. This is the thing we're focused on. Just at the moment, as we're starting to acknowledge the intelligences of other things, other non-human actors in the world around us, uh, something that we've we've conspicuously failed to do uh, throughout pretty much the whole of kind of anthropocentric human history. You might have heard of uh, Sophia, uh, the humanoid, barely human-ish AI, uh, which was made by a technology company and who somehow persuaded the Saudi government to grant Sophia uh, legal citizenship, uh, which is something that the Saudi government doesn't actually uh, give to women, queer people, foreigners, or uh, kind of huge numbers of other members of society. Um, in part, this is just an example of kind of AI-driven hype. Again, this is not intelligent, it's a machine system. But it speaks to our kind of willingness to, to um, 
desperately want to believe in kind of one form of intelligence, one form of complexity in strangers, while continuing to kind of erase uh, the validity uh, of other forms. I think far more interesting than something Sophia is, is efforts, for example, to create legal personhood for, for non-human species. Um, there's a serious and ongoing efforts at present to give legal standing, a form of citizenship, a form of representation to, um, at least at the beginning, to, um, to uh, primates. There's several ongoing court cases in the US to allow primates to have legal standing in court. Uh, there's also a, a court case which is due to be uh, ruled on next week, an elephant called Happy, uh, who currently lives in the Bronx Zoo, um, who is uh, uh, the, uh, the legal team are attempting to give Happy legal standing um, in order that they, he can effectively be rescued and placed in a, in a better environment. And the, the reasoning they're basing this on is discoveries about animal cognition. The realization that uh, huge numbers of species have incredibly advanced forms of intelligence that we haven't recognized in any meaningful way up until this point, but exist to such a level that they must deserve rights along the way. I don't think the legal approach is the only one for this, but it's an incredibly powerful one. Um, this, is, this is one of my favorites. This is Aumu, uh, a chimpanzee at the uh, Primark Research Center in Japan, uh, performing a task at which he uh, outpaces any human. Uh, he's doing a thing where he um, he's shown a number of numbers for a brief second. They disappear, and then he hits the spots that correspond to them in the right order immediately afterwards. Uh, basically evidence of, a, a, of not only just the fact that he recognizes numbers, can count, and so on and so forth, but also of a photographic memory, of an ability to recall those, uh, which is not matched by any humans at all. Um, there are so many efflorescences of intelligence currently being revealed by animal cognition studies and others around the world. Um, you might likely have also heard the sort of recent buzz around various forms of cephalopod intelligence. Uh, this is an octopus escaping from his jar. Uh, they do way weirder things than this. Um, they're known to recognize faces, for example. Um, they can tell the difference between human individuals. They have favorites. Uh, they will squirt water at people they don't like uh, in their aquaria. Um, but what's particularly odd about octopus, or there's many odd things about them, one of them of which is that their neural system is distributed throughout their entire bodies. Uh, neurons go down through their arms. There's evidence that perhaps the, brain, the, the arms effectively are their own motor systems controlled independently and perhaps think differently. We really have no idea at this point what they're up to, but they're doing things that completely expand our idea of what intelligence is or kind of might be. Within each of us is two kilograms of uh, non-human life. Uh, two kilograms is the average weight of the human microbiome, which is mostly the, the bugs in your gut, but it's also stuff kind of all over other bits of your body as well. We're carrying around an, in, an entire kind of ecosystem within our bodies that affects us directly. Um, the, the, the health of our biome, of the other organisms that we share the body with, affects our cognition. We think differently based on the makeup of the other species that inhabit our bodies. Um, at the other end of the scale, this is um, one of the oldest and largest organisms in the world. It's a forest in Colorado. 
Uh, it's a hundred acre expanse of, of trembling aspen trees that are a single organism, a single fruiting root body uh, that's at least 80,000 years old. Each tree is a clone, a shoot of one organism that lives under the ground. Um, its name is Pando, and it, which means to spread out. Um, research over the last decade shows that trees communicate, uh, that they can pass messages from one to another, that they communicate under the ground, they share information, they share food, uh, they respond to attacks by telling other trees about the attack occurring and are capable of sending aid to one another. We're only just beginning to acknowledge the kind of incredible variety of intelligence that exists elsewhere. Um, under these circumstances, for me, the, the strangeness of artificial intelligence almost seems to pale, but I'm determined to keep talking about them in the same degree because they are all intelligences that we increasingly share the planet with us, and some of them can perhaps tell us how to treat it slightly better. Um, a few hundred years ago, our kind of entire model of the world got turned radically around uh, by the establishment of the Copernican system, which, against all prior evidence and against huge amounts of um, opposition, uh, suggested that we are perhaps not at the center of the universe. And this laid the ground for, for the Enlightenment and the Renaissance and uh, the, the entire history of modernity, this realization that we're not quite at the center of things. Uh, we, we're really on the brink. Uh, we're already experiencing a new Copernican revolution in which human intelligence is no longer the only, uh, the only thing in town uh, by a very long way. Uh, we have both animal intelligences and other intelligences and deeply alien intelligences out there. We also have tools that we're building and creating that can, treated the right way in terms of cooperation, help us to understand these things differently, but also require very different modes of thinking and even social organization in order to, to make them um, any kind of assistance to us, uh, rather than being pure forms of kind of oppression upon us. Um, how we get there, for me, depends on a huge amount of, of thoughtfulness, of care, of paying attention to the signals that our technologies are giving us and that the natural world is giving us. Uh, increasing amounts of education uh, and um, primarily a kind of humility and care, both for one another, for the machines and for the natural environment uh, that will allow us to kind of entirely rethink these things anew. Uh, and I've talked for long enough, so thank you very much indeed. Uh, I thought we might do some questions if anyone has any. So, how would you define intelligence? Oh, I wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> many have tried. Uh, I don't. I. I don't know. I, don't, I. I. I think the attempt to define intelligence is one of those kind of symptoms of where we've been thinking about it precisely wrong, um, because it's always been def 
defined in terms of a human exceptionalism, um, uh, which is kind of ever-shrinking, essentially. And it's basically like intelligence is, is whatever we are and everyone isn't, uh, which goes against, like, well, particularly any kind of understanding of evolution as a, as a kind of gradualist process in which, in certain ways, humans are a kind of local maximum in the field of intelligence. Though, for example, in the ability of photographic memory and, and, and numbers, as, as um, the chimpanzee there showed us, uh, we're not, there are different points to this. So I, I don't define intelligence. I think ability, agency uh, are, are more interesting ones. What can we do? What are the affordances? Uh, they don't map neatly onto intelligence. So, uh, yeah. Um, it was pretty good. Yeah, thanks. And but that in the end, it slightly turned it into kind of, uh, I mean, it was a bit all Heideggerian, a bit all this kind of technology is not a natural tool, and now we need to care, and, and, and it's pretty, you know, uh, I, I pretty agree with that. But then, I, I mean, you mentioned only a couple of times, I think, capitalism, no? And um, so, in the end of the talk, and, I, and it was more in the beginning, uh, but then in the end of the talk, it was almost like um, capitalism is like disappeared from the view, and it's like, so, what? I mean, we need to care for the intelligence or whatever of the technology on the other human beings. But then the thing is, uh, is the problem computation or is the way in which is hijacked by a specific system, which is this system in which neurological hacking and capitalist destruction are connected? And so the question is, what do you think about um, the idea of, uh, I mean, there is a lot of debate in the field of uh, science and technology about accelerationism, for instance, which, to make it simple, like uh, how to, the difference between having a critique of technology per se, or um, trying to expand computation in order to disarticulate it from capitalism and so make it more. So how do you position your view within this? Uh, yeah, I think I get what you're getting at. Um, and, and yeah, when I talk about these issues, quite often the question is, like, are you just talking about capitalism? Um, and I am in, in some ways. Um, uh, but what I would say about that is I am trying to find a way through this that doesn't throw out all of technological progress, achievements, uh, possibilities with... Uh, the capitalist forces that have largely taken control of it. Um, I don't, I'm not talking about accelerationism, and I'm talking about simply the fact that these tools can be used for anything we choose to put them from. It's just as possible to have leftist, uh, socialist, or anarchist technologies uh, in very meaningful ways, in fact, and I can talk about some of those. But um, uh, it's more that um, I think... I don't believe that there's a natural affinity between technology and, cap and capital. Um, I, th I think capitalism is, is, a, is an ideology of extraction that uses technology much better than the rest of us are doing and has some very good tricks for doing that. 
Uh, one of the main ones is, is a kind of broad ignorance of technological processes and keeping those within a quite small um, kind of priesthood of, of technologists uh, and building a kind of ideology around that uh, based on kind of Silicon Valley success and kind of monetary gain in the financial system. Um, I would happily scrub capitalism from all of it. What I would think is more possible to do is rethink what it is that these technologies are actually for um, and think about having, and, and doing that through a processes of understanding and restructuring them. And I think that given enough time, this being a generations long project, um, the more people understand technology and the more people in numbers and diversity involved in that, uh, it is possible to shift um, uh, the uses to which these technologies are put. Uh, and and that, that in itself is a mode of resisting capitalism that relies on us understanding what is being done. That's my, that's my plan. Hi, uh, thank you. Um, as I'm sure you know, there's been uh, AI winters before. Is it possible that there might be another AI winter, or is this time we've done it, if you see what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anything's really been done in that regard, um, but it's super interesting. So for those who don't know so much, what they call AI winters are basically hype around AI has cycled up and down for kind of 60, 70 years now. Um, I actually studied AI in like the last peak, um, uh, and then it's been quiet for kind of 15, 20 years, uh, and now we're in another kind of hype cycle of artificial intelligence, and, and some think that that will fall away again into another these AI winters when everyone thinks it's complete rubbish. Um, the difference this time round, I think, is that um, uh, the systems that have been developed are so unlike human intelligence, they don't really need to fulfill previous definitions of artificial intelligence. They're working so successfully, it's not really about the old discourse around AI. Like, uh, as I say, artificial intelligence itself is a, is a hype term for complex computational systems that are doing very, very well, that have more to do with the availability of uh, huge amounts of data and huge amounts of processing power. Um, and, and certain kind of mathematical models around neural networks, which have emerged very, very slowly over time through, through artificial intelligence research. Um, so, like, the hype of AI may go away, but the um, increasing power of these computational systems and their kind of dominance over everyday life, and therefore their availability to those in power at, at the present moment or at any future moment, uh, is not going away. Um, yeah, I, th I think the, the focus on AI is almost kind of a distraction from um, just the kind of raw um, modeling, monitoring, and controlling power of uh, vast amounts of information coupled to vast amounts of processing power.
Hi, uh, thank you for the talk. Um, you talk about in your presentation and in your book uh, as technology as an early warning system for the future and for the shape of things to come. Uh, what's in your point of view in terms of technologies and in terms of AI, the most worrisome developments and the most promising developments in terms of uh, liberating uh, people from uh, the powers that be? And uh, also, what do you think uh, if there's a way or a third way to do things in terms of uh, AI approaches, since we have the United States way, which is very business-centric and militaristic, and we have the Chinese way of doing things, which is very militaristic, dialed up 1,000. Uh, so what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, you've just you've sort of described the two uh, fields in which like most contemporary technology is emerging. Uh, and are both deeply terrifying in their, in their own way, which is either a, a kind of American-style capitalist system um, or a kind of Chinese state control system. And if any kind of real AI does emerge in the near future, it's going to emerge within one of those two systems, which is a fairly terrifying thought. Um, uh, oh, what was the question? Uh, one second. Um, so, no, uh, what do I, what is this frightening? Um, what I see as, as, as deeply frightening is, is this elision between uh, kind of computational efficiency and, and what's happening to the human mind, uh, really, really quite seriously in ways that I, I keep kind of running up against. Um, and uh, so the example are the kind of YouTube hacks or whatever, but it's kind of in pretty much everything at this point. We, like every time you check your phone, you're responding to a neurological hack that's been performed on you by these technologies, and it's been done deliberately. Uh, and we've all had that feeling of being like, oh, I shouldn't be doing this, but I sort of can't help myself. That's a habit that's been deliberately ingrained in us by the design of these technologies. Uh, and it's being done for profit um, by, by the companies who are doing it. Uh, and so that excessive, what feels like a kind of evolutionary shift in which the technologies are effectively evolving faster than, than the mind can kind of deal with their response is, is kind of my biggest fear. Um, uh, Shuzana Zuboff, who her new book, Surveillance Capitalism, like ties that very tightly to, um, to a kind of a capitalist logic of, it, of, of uh, extraction. Um, and, but also, and, and she's interesting because she is, uh, a believer in capitalism. She thinks capitalism is good. Uh, technology is perverting it. Um, I'm not sure that's the case. Um, but what, uh, but what, what the way she, in which she describes it working is the way in which this sets us into a path from which we cannot escape. Um, because the availability of data uh, about us, uh, the constant monitoring of us through devices and systems, uh, whether we carry them with, them, with us, or whether they're kind of external to us, um, create a world in which all kind of choices about the future are removed from us. Um, you combine that with kind of this neurological hack process, and you, you have a, a future in which we have less and less agency, which is the exact opposite of what technology is supposed to give us. Uh, technology is, in sort of one possible definition, is just like extended tool use, right? It's supposed to extend our reach and it's currently mostly being used to restrict that reach. Um, that is my fear. 
Um, I don't have magic good answers to that, uh, except that I constantly encounter areas in which, like, technology does not have to be designed that way on, on kind of multiple levels. Um, I think the possibility remains to kind of decentralize and um, better distribute networks and computational power by designing networks differently from the ground up and the kind of decentralized web movement at various levels is part of that. Um, uh, and uh, an education which focuses on understanding and, and being able to live meaningfully within complexity is the only answer I have to ways of kind of um, reopening up uh, the possibility of choosing different outcomes from a system that is really focused on restricting them at present. So, first of all, thank you for, for your amazing talk. One of the things you've touched quite often, quite often is the agency uh, role in this, is how can we make decisions by ourselves? And you kind of come across as giving the impression that we've reached a threshold where those narrow hacks that you mentioned have kind of switched the field. Uh, and one of the things that you mentioned when you were talking about recommendation engines were the conspiracy videos. I would like you to expand a little bit of the interplay in between the agency of someone who creates those videos and the recommendation engines themselves. How does that kind of arms race goes and how do you feel that it is impacting us? Sure. Um, yeah, so what's happening is uh, uh, you have a kind of, a, a kind of reinforcement that happens. Uh, so you watch one video about one thing. Uh, YouTube thinks you like that thing, and so it shows you more. Um, and that's not just a process of um, like gaining more information on that subject. It's also a process of creating consensus. So it gives the impression that more and more other people also feel the same way as you, which is an incredibly powerful psychological tool. Uh, and there's several things happening in there, but I think one of, the, one of the things it's super connected to is this idea of agency. One of the other weird feedback loops that's occurring is that because of the complexity, not just of technological tools, but of, of, of society, of, of, uh, of, of, um, uh, of global events. Um, let me wind that back a bit. The world has always been incredibly complex. Right? This is like, I, 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 don't, I don't hold with the view that the world is more complex now than it was before. It is, however, more apparently complex. Uh, we're exposed to it, to the raw complexity of the world in ways that we have never historically been. It's been much easier historically to ignore the complexity of the world because of our kind of limited vision of it and exposure to it. One of the main things that the kind of global media and increasing the internet has done over the last hundred years, uh, all the way through telecommunications and everything else, is to bring more and more of the world right up into our faces, uh, which makes everything more confusing. Um, and, and human animals react to confusion with fear and often anger. Um, and as a result, we seek out um, 
simpler, clearer stories. It's a kind of survival mechanism. Um, one of the ways in which we do that is we seek narratives that explain things to us in ways that we, that we, that we can wrap our heads around. Um, and also that, that give us this sense of agency, not just of having kind of control over the narrative, but also of, of like having made that discovery for ourselves, right? That we have actually made some understanding, we've kind of got somewhere by thinking this. Uh, the world is clearer and understandable once again and not so confusing and fearful. Um, so that's, that, that's conspiracy theory and, and, and ideologies and all kinds of other things very neatly wrapped up. Um, recommendation engines in the form of YouTube's ones and Facebook news feed are kind of delivery engines for that kind of uh, what I would consider a false agency, but a very powerful one. Uh, you're given the impression that you've discovered something that no one else believes in, or th but that explains the world. You've made this kind of radical shift. That's incredibly empowering in a world where most people are deeply disempowered. Um, the result of that is, is an increasing kind of factionalism and confusion uh, over again as people kind of splinter into these overtly simplistic views of the, views of the world. Um, and, and that's true as much for the people uploading as it is for the people watching. They're attempting to gain some kind of control over this narrative which is increasingly obviously not coherent. Uh, but that incoherence is the world itself. That for me is the ultimate kind of uh, collapse of, of computational thinking is when you run up against a world that is, is paradoxical, that is confusing, that extends beyond a kind of individual human understanding of that. Um, and and we, we really struggle for the tools for how to, how to deal with that. Um, and at the moment, uh, there's a lot of people making a lot of money off uh, uh, pretending that we, can, that, we can, that we can simplistically sort that out, as demagogues and others have done throughout history. Thanks for the talk. Um, I had a question about, uh, well, starts off as a comment and maybe there's a question in there. I, I was thinking about the stuff you said and I was uh, thinking to myself, the worst that could happen and in any of these scenarios is that um, well, at least as a species, humans can just you know, hit like a kill switch on any of those scenarios, right? Like um, the example you gave about the cost of a new drug coming up and then you said, what they started doing now is telling people to follow their hunches, which is essentially a, let's kill this computational way of finding it, get back to us. And you could do the same with a lot of the other scenarios. Um, would you say, so I guess that's the question, is would you say as humans we still haven't figured out the right vocabulary to respond to a lot of these things that, you, that, that this computational technology is bringing up? For example, you mentioned uh, automation bias, I think. So that's something that most humans uh, don't really think about in response to what's happening. And maybe all we need is, um, I don't know, a few years, five years, 10 years, a decade or so to, to respond to that. And then the technology sort of works again, almost as the early programmable technologies you were talking about for the weather and not the more advanced. But right now it feels like, you know, it's really far and advanced. And uh, maybe we just need time to figure that out is what I'm saying. 
Yeah, I mean, I talk about these these approaches because I think there's things that we could be doing in the present. Um, I'm I'm not sure we can hit the kill switch on all of the processes that we've set in train, um, particularly environmentally. Um, we've already released enough carbon and continue to do so that we're going to overshoot most kind of controls on that and 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 uh, radical changes to like the the planet itself is coming down the line fairly quick. So that's always there just to keep that conversation cheery. Um, um, I, 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 I somehow I may have some kind of chemical imbalance or something, but I, I like I can't help but think also of what like we can do um, because I don't think when I talk about these these other ways of thinking about technology, I'm not thinking about how we can just like make YouTube better or I, I know this is not necessarily what you're suggesting, but like I'm not thinking like how we can make YouTube better or like you know keep the weather forecast okay. I'm thinking about how we can use what is essentially 100, if not 1,000 years experiments on, um, on ourselves and on our way of thinking about the world um, and, and the obvious and visible results of that to actually spur other ways of thinking that might produce very different outcomes. Um, this is where I start to get nailed up and caught. Um, because I, I, there's something Every one of these new technologies, every, every time it spirals off or goes weird or goes wrong or produces these kind of incredibly bad outcomes in various ways, it's, it's another part of figuring out how we could marginally improve that process. Not because we'll suddenly like magically make everything better, but because we're going to need that understanding for whatever comes next. Um, so I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but like it... I, I see these as ongoing processes, not in any case, certainly not kind of a reset to a previous level of technology, wherever you kind of want to draw that line. We'll take one more and one then more. we'll then we'll go for a drink because that's good. Hi, um, I, I I don't have a real question yet because I'm still thinking. Oh, 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 oh yeah. <laughs> but I want to to um, to share with you an idea yeah. uh, that happened to me very recently. This is my yoga te teacher. She's on her seventies, and she told me something that I was uh, really surprised with. She told me that she had so much hope on the 70s and on the 80s. And I said, hope about what? About freedom? She said, no, about technology. Because technology would free me from tasks. And this was the promise. And the promise failed. And, uh, uh, and this, this to me was uh, because I would never think about technology as something to free us, to, 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 to give us uh, freedom. I, I wouldn't think about that. But then I start thinking about the process that I work with, that is this communication um, at distance. And I believe, just to, <laughs> just to shut a little bit of this, uh, all this horror, I believe that by developing uh, this distance communication, we also are helping the environment. Uh, because in a way, it would allow us to be in places without traveling there. 
you know, so it's... And then I realized I was in the same trap that she was, like the same promise that technology would bring something in the future. And, uh, uh, and then you were, you were telling about this failure and about all of this, uh, that technology keeps on failing. And, I, 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 and, uh, and that, that's something that I, I wanted to hear more about it, about this failing and about and us not understanding that it will fail and it's failing and always fail. And that's, that's <laughs> more or less what I wanted to share. No, I mean, I'll, 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 as a short response, I'll just say that the, 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 the lie that we're constantly sold about technology is that it will um, magically improve our lives in this way. It will essentially absolve us of responsibility. Um, that it, but whether that's making stuff easier, make, you know, t doing our work for us, whatever. These are forms of, of removing our responsibility and essentially interceding between us and the world in ways that, that um, um, are supposed to be, um, as I said, increase our agency, but in practice continually reduce it. Um, and for me, that is as a result of, of seeing um, all technological apparatuses all the way back, but like in so incredibly obviously with computation uh, that, we're, that we see them as um, uh, tools for like doing stuff for us rather than um, questions that we are asking, right? That they are, that they are not machines for working for us, but tools for asking questions of the world and, and responding to those continually that there's no part of this that we can put aside from ourselves and say, okay, that machine does that, we'll let it get on with doing that. Whether that's a, a simple device or whether it's an entire kind of system for interacting with the world. Uh, computers are uh, machines for, for asking questions. All our technologies are machines for asking questions of the universe that we then need to listen very carefully to the answers from and never like, give up the agency to them in any way at all. Thank you.